Okay, so um, shall I read out the little acknowledgement line? All planning, interviews and recording for this episode have taken place on Nunawal country, within which sits the city of Canberra. This is The Grass Ceiling, a guided tour of sustainability. Sustainability is ever-changing and complex, so join us as we break it down and figure it out. My name is Sumi, and I'm one of the hosts of this show. And my name is Nick, and I'm the other host. All right, Nick, can I be real with you for one second? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, absolutely. Sorry, I thought it was rhetorical. Be real with me. So I've been feeling really stumped and overwhelmed by all this climate change stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it feels like the earth is dying and, and we're not acting fast enough. And I would just lie in bed and think to myself, what's the point of all of this? Like, what are we even fighting for? What's the goal? Mm-hmm. You feel me? I do feel you. Yep. I go through the same thing myself. You do have to wonder, I think it is an unspoken and under-addressed issue in sustainability, uh, not just within climate change and so on, but you know, within the broader sustainability issue, uh, I think, yeah, what are we really trying to do here? What's the goal? Have we talked about that enough? So far, we've talked about the sort of history of sustainability and wh- how we've come here and the need for sustainability and working across disciplines. But I think fundamentally underpinning everything is what's the reason for sustainability? You know, what's it about? We could talk about definitions and mm-hmm. what sustainability in itself means, uh, and underpinning that is the philosophy behind it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, actually, that's an interesting way to look at it. So we've got all these different definitions, and I think in previous episodes we have talked about that. So say, for example, one definition of sustainability is the three pillars framework. So it's like sustainability in that context is looking not just at you know, the economic bottom line, but also looking at the social good and the environmental, you know, good that comes out of what you're doing, whether it's practicing actual business or just running any kind of organization. And then you can look at another definition, which is like, say, intergenerational equity, which says, you know, uh, sustainability, or in this case, sustainable development, which is kind of like the practice of sustainability or one practice of sustainability. And they say, um, you know, that's meeting the needs of people today without compromising you know, the needs of people in the future. And that's another definition of it. And for our project, we've sort of provided a much simpler definition, or at least a starting definition, which was just almost circular. It almost refers back to itself, but it's sustainability is the ability um, of a society or an environment to persist over time. Earlier when you were talking about intergenerational equity, which is, I guess, one possible principle Mm -hmm. of sustainability, uh, you were talking about the future. So my question, I guess, would be when we talk about the future, how far in the future are we looking? You know, because we can think back to how long humans have existed on this earth and then we can think forward of how long we might exist towards the future and to what extent did past generations have an obligation to us and to what extent do we have an obligation to people living, I don't know, even like a million years from now that we can't really conceive of what the world would be like then. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a huge question um, for me personally. Um, Yeah, I think there is this assumption. I think a lot of people walk through life with this assumption that humans will always be around, you know, that we'll be here forever. Um, And you see that assumption or that belief echoed, I think, in a lot of, you know, popular culture. You look at science fiction in particular, 
and there's humanity, you know, out colonizing the stars and whatever, you know, they've been around for thousands, if not um, hundreds of thousands, even sometimes millions of years. And there's this assumption that, you know, that's just a kind of a, a painting of the future that's ahead of us. It's usually very technocratic. So it's usually like driven by this idea that technology and, and so on will allow us to exist far, far into the future. But then if you look at ecology, you look at the basic facts of ecology, right? There is a cycle of life and death. For pretty much any ecosystem on Earth to work, things need to die. <laughs> you know? Um, and the circle so, of life. Yeah, the circle of life, man. Like, um, so to what extent, you know, are we not being ecologically conscious or um, grounding ourselves in our environment when we imagine ourselves persisting over such long time scales? I mean... The futility of aspiring towards an infinitely long existence. And that ties into a, a quote, a favorite quote of mine um, by the author Chuck Polinick, who wrote the uh, fairly well-known novel and subsequently turned into a movie, uh, Fight Club. And in Fight Club, one of the characters has this wonderful line. He says, on a long enough time scale, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. So this is kind of questioning that narrative that will be around forever. So you can say, you know, Sometimes when I've given talks on sustainability and on this idea, you know, I get the room to sort of put your hand up if you think we're going to be around in 50 years and keep your hand raised if you think we're going to be around in 100. And I just keep ramping the numbers up. Uh, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, a million, 100 million, a billion, 100 billion, a trillion. <laughs> on a long enough time scale, it's very hard to imagine that we're going to be around. And we can talk maybe a bit later about I guess, kind of the, the nuances or the subtleties of what we means in that. So humans might have died off, but we may not have been annihilated. We may have just transcended to or ascended to another species. You know, we might all be robots, you know, brains uploaded into robots or something, at which point we're not really human and the human species has fallen away, but something is still carrying the torch for us or something. Who knows? Then we get too sidetracked into that. But the, <laughs> the point is that, yeah, there is a cycle of life and death. There is this idea in at least some aspects of sustainability and human culture more broadly that we're going to be around forever. And I think we need to question that. And, and if we question it, if we sort of agree, okay, yeah, we're not going to be around forever, then the question is, well, what's the expiry date on this whole experiment? What is an acceptable time to just cut it off and say, you know what, we've had a pretty good run. And then to bring it back into intergenerational equity, it's like to what extent does that represent an ethical or a moral obligation to future generations being ignored or shirked or whatever, you know, people who don't get to exist and experience the amazingness of life. Yeah, just recently I was at a uh, Botanic Gardens sort of exhibition walk thing, which was talking about how, so it's in far north Queensland, okay. and how the plants um, evolved over time from the period of time where all the continents were one in, what was it called? Pangea. Pangea, yeah. Right. And so it was talking about how ferns evolved to be and which plants came first and everything like that. And just looking at that massive time scale and thinking about when humans sort of came into that, <laughs> you know, and the physical world that we have today has taken so many millions and billions of years to be what it is that if, say, we were to do time travel, you know, to a billion years ago or something, if we were to look at the world around us, it'd look so different. Is there, a, is there a fundamental assumption within the word sustainability that assumes this level of being static? Mm. And is that a problem? 
Yeah, there is that kind of static element to it, isn't it? That unchanging, the unchanging constant is us. That's what remains static, is that humans are still around, I guess. And that we've found some way to, to stick around, to persist, and maybe not only to persist, but to thrive. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a hell of an assumption, and it goes very under the radar, I think, in a lot of sustainability discourse. I don't think people like to talk about the end of the species. And if you do, you're typically, you know, labeled an alarmist or a defeatist or a nihilist or all these sorts of things. There's a lot of positivity, I think, that um, we can draw out of this idea. I'll just kind of take a segue here for a moment. So the idea of euthanasia, right, is this idea that what matters at a certain point when you are terminally ill is the quality of your life, not the length of it. So if we are terminally ill as a species, then we have a species-wide euthanasia question to ask ourselves, you know, rather than futilely trying to eke out another couple of years, should we instead focus on the quality of time we have left? And in that sense, it can be kind of, it still sounds kind of pessimistic, but it does have an element of positivity to it. Sure, but then it kind of leaves that question of, we do have a certain level of control over how long that timeline is, mm. you know. Uh, we can say all of human life is going to die within the next 50 years, mm. so let's have a big friggin' party <laughs> and, you know, ruin everything yep. within that time because yep. this is the timeline that we've set for ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we could also say that, no, we want to last 100 million years mm. and then the story is very different. And so while we can say that there may be this finite timeline that does exist, and we need to acknowledge that, that it does exist and we need to bear that in mind. We also do have a fair bit of wiggle room about how long that timeline is and that's determined by the actions that we take. Here's an idea. So maybe it's not hypothetical, this idea that you just threw out, you know, let's have a big party before the end of the world. Maybe that's exactly what we're doing right now. I look around the world and it feels like a lot of people have, maybe not consciously, but at least subconsciously made that decision already. Yeah, you, I agree. If you let actions speak instead of words, I look around the world and I'm just seeing people saying, you know what, fuck it. Like, <laughs> let's just enjoy the time we got left. I like my cheeseburgers. I like my SUVs. I like my international flights. I'm not willing to give these things up. I'd rather the quality of life that these things give me, even if that means that I have less life left. And we might look at those people and say, well, that's really unethical. You know, it's immoral of you to make that decision because you're dooming future generations and so on. But within the context of the conversation we're having, maybe there's a bit more to it than that. Maybe we can't fault them too much. Maybe if we are terminally ill, and it's hard to tell, you know, we can't tell whether we are or not. We don't know the future, but if we are terminally ill, then maybe there is some justification for the decision to just enjoy the time that we have left. All right, let's take that, you know, this terminally ill sort mm. of, would you say it's a metaphor or do you think it's more concrete than that? Well, I don't know. It could be a metaphor. <laughs> it could be okay, <laughs> so I'm just going to scale it down to sure. something that maybe might be a bit more conceivable. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about a really polluted city. A couple of decades ago, that city may not have been as polluted because maybe that city wasn't as industrialized and it didn't have so many cars and whatever it is. But the people in there might be a lot more... Um, rich in terms of they might have higher incomes than they did prior to the the cars and everything being brought in. You know, maybe there are more buildings and there are uh, banks that are thriving off the business in that city and all this sorts of stuff. But then on a physical level, having a really polluted city causes health problems for the people who live within it. Mm -hmm. And 
maybe the people who are old now had to live the past 30 to 40 years of their life with with a polluted city. The kids that are born now are going to have to live their probably their entire life with this pollution unless something is done about it. So when we talk about the quality of life, it also can vary a lot depending on what we consider to be a good life. True. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, quality of life is <laughs> a very important idea to define when you're discussing terminating life and so on. Certainly in philosophical discussions of euthanasia and so on, I've done a little bit of this in philosophy courses and you do spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, that kind of question. What constitutes, you know, a good quality of life and so on. And I think that's an excellent point, you know, and for who as well, you know. Uh, like who gets to decide? Because there's all these issues of, you know, colonialism and patriarchy and so on that are baked into the ideas of sustainability. So it might be a good quality of life for a rich white man, but <laughs> in those, you know, dying 50 years of the species, but it might still be just a shit for some. I think there's an important binary that we need to address in this case. And that is this idea of, you know, immortality versus Annihilation? Yep. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, sure. Yep. Annihilation. Yep. Uh, so it's this assumption that, you know, we either live forever mm. or we're absolutely gone. All right. Where does this sort of transformation space, like how, where does that fit into this? Mm. Yeah. To what extent is that a false dichotomy, right? To what extent um, do we have other choices than either dying or living forever? On one level, it's hard to imagine there is a third option because, I mean, physically, we're either going to be here or we're not. But as I was kind of, you know, getting at earlier, maybe annihilation can mean different things. And also maybe immortality and annihilation can kind of be the same thing. So we annihilate ourselves in a way that allows something of us to persist on. But yeah, maybe sustainability isn't necessarily about living forever. And again, maybe that doesn't really go addressed or talked about by sustainability scholars and so on. But maybe they just want a bit more time, you know. And that's not a hard argument to make, I think, like... I personally feel like we've got a lot of great horizons ahead of us as a species and I personally would like to see us continue and just because I think it'll be interesting and exciting and, you know, um, awe-inspiring. It's pretty cool what humans get up to and I think <coughs> we should you know, encourage us to continue to, continue to innovate, continue to build things, continue to try and build a better society than we, you know, tomorrow than we had yesterday. I think that's all great and I think that's really noble to fight for that in the face of what looks like a pretty impossible challenge, whether it's climate change or sustainability more broadly. But again, I think we have to circle back to the, okay, well, if it's not a forever thing and we do want to fight against annihilation, then how long? <laughs> how long is long enough? And everybody's going to have a different answer, right? Another thing, just to tie that, all this back into, say, colonialism and so on, is um, if you're a rich white family and you've been wealthy intergenerationally for, you know, seven generations or whatever, you might be like, yeah, I've had a pretty good run. But if you just like lifted yourself out of poverty, you know, some second generation immigrant family, you'd be like, no, we're just getting started. You know, we just got to the party. We want to have some more time to enjoy this ride. You know, it, it just became a fun ride for us, you know, so. And for some people, they may feel that their sort of point of doom happened at the point of colonization uh, where the agency to be able to um, take control of their own fates was no longer in their hands. And then what happens is you're kind of working within this suboptimal existence as a society, as a community. Mm -hmm. And this idea of, 
I guess, you know, when we talk about annihilation or I mean, whatever. Annihilation like, has already happened yeah. for a whole lot of people, a whole lot yeah. of cultures. Um, but I think that's a fantastic point to make. Uh, and that's just me showing my, you know, my white bias, to be quite honest. Like, you know, talking talking about annihilation as if it hasn't already happened. It has already happened. It's happened for species on a massive scale, but it's happened for people too. I feel like now would probably be a good time to just touch on what we mean by us. Mm. We talk about how, you know, humans are screwing up the earth and we as a race should be wiped out to save all other species from our ridiculous, destructive shenanigans. Right. Uh, And it's well known that, you know, some people's actions have more of an impact than other people's actions. You have a few corporations and companies that are responsible for so much more pollution than millions and millions of people. No, I'm not saying necessarily you and I, but I hear from other people who have this, I guess, this sense of despair around the climate. I hear people saying that humans, we're too greedy. We don't know how to care for the world around us and we should all just die. You know, is, this, is, is this a problem at a species level? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, fantastic point. It's pretty rich to say we're all too greedy when... Eight men have more wealth than half the people in the world. If you and I, you and me, we both have access to 2,250 US dollars, that makes us richer than half the world. Half the world doesn't have access to that amount of money. That's how poor half the world is. So when we do say it's a species-level responsibility, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of unfair to a lot of people um, because they're just trying to get out of grinding poverty. They're just trying to feed themselves. And and typically, disproportionately, it's the rich, white, industrialized you know, countries that have the biggest ecological footprints. The, the poorer you are, the smaller your footprint becomes, your ecological footprint becomes. But I guess also poverty by a certain measure, right? Like we're talking about this GDP, like income, monetary income focused idea of wealth. Yeah, income and wealth inequality. Which I guess some people may, like they they may be physically in poverty and they probably struggle to make ends meet, but that also is within a system that sees... A that assumes that a, certain... yeah, a good life requires a certain amount of money and so on. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, again, I'm loving that you're calling out all these assumptions. This is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's the political economic system that we're in, yes. right? And yes. and that legacy, uh, we could say, arises from colonization where mm-hmm. most, if not all, communities and peoples in the world are either forced to participate in this uh, capitalist system or to be ostracized and yeah, you just know just cast out exactly. absolutely yeah yeah if we're going to have a discussion about who's responsible and who's who bears the the biggest burden we also need to be mindful of what you're talking about which is that it doesn't just come down to money and for a lot of people money isn't the important thing family is having a healthy environment is all these things that aren't really economic that in a in a western liberal global economy these are the things that we often commoditize the environment in particular we commoditize so we view it through that capitalist economic lens but they don't necessarily do the same thing um, and that's worth keeping in mind when we're having a discussion about who's rich who's poor what does a fairer world look like it may not just be about redistributing the wealth it might be about some deeper structural things and just rethinking our whole worldview to what do we value how important are humans 
in the world. I know that we have had a great big impact and a lot of the changes that are happening physically in the world can be attributed to human actions. But in the grand scheme of things, how important are we really? You know, if we were to just disappear off the face of the earth right now, yes, there will be some ongoing issues due to our actions and the impacts that we've had. But there is this new point of equilibrium that the earth is likely to come to. It may not be optimal for our existence and maybe not for some other species' existence. But I guess if we think about the evolution of species to adapt to the current climate, you know, through ice ages and through hot periods, cold periods, through volcanic activity, uh, there is going to be some form of life likely. Um, It may not be recognizable to what exists today. But I think that the possible death and annihilation of human existence may not necessarily mean the end of the earth. It may just be the end of the earth as we know it. Yeah, I think. There's a terrible tragedy in this idea of annihilation to me because, and again, I could be being, being very anthropocentric, but we are special. Um, as Carl Sagan once said, we are a way for the universe to experience itself. And that's a pretty profound thing when you think about it. I remember when I read that in the book, I had to put the book down and chill for a couple of days. <laughs> it kind of blew my mind. But um, we are special. And and. For all we know, ants can do the same thing. I'm not I'm not trying to get at that point, but I'm just saying if there is a future for us and that future involves us leaving this planet and expanding out into the cosmos, there may be we have to entertain the possibility that we're the only people out there with that. And if that were the case, if we're the smartest thing in the universe, then for us to be annihilated would be kind of a terrible tragedy in a way because what amazing things could have happened if we were able to stick around. And also to take it back to this idea of ethics and morality and duty and obligation, maybe it's not just future generations of humans that we are responsible for, but the environment more broadly. I'll give you a wild far future example, but maybe there is some sort of mechanism that will cause the universe to collapse back in on itself in a billion trillion years, and maybe we can stop that. And maybe through stopping that, we allow you know a million more lives uh, countless more life to flourish and experience the cosmos and but isn't that messing with the way the universe has existed and worked for billions and billions of years well uh, messing with if we assume that we aren't part of nature and that what we're doing by changing these forces isn't also i mean otters for example will dam up a river so are they messing with nature or are they part of nature you know what i mean so i mean it's a great question um, are we interfering with nature or, or are we just nature, you know, interfering with itself? As Sagan said, we are in a way for the universe to experience itself. So maybe we're a way for the universe to modify itself too. And if we are, if we entertain that possibility, then the idea of us getting annihilated is, yeah, just deeply tragic because we were the, you know, <laughs> the brightest, greatest hope for the universe to achieve something special and we died off because of bloody fossil fuels or something like what a tragic, pitiful ending. What, you know, what a terrible ending to that story that would be. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, a concept that's central to the idea of species survival and species thriving and adaptation is the theory of evolution, right? And it's interesting to think about humans' use of technology as being a sort of sped up form of evolution in the Mm -hmm. sense that we as physical species like we haven't 
grown more eyes on our head to be able to see predators, but we have things like surveillance technology to be able to watch what our eyes can't physically see at or a particular point in time. even just fences to keep all of the things that we want to prey on within a, you know, keep all the cows within an area so we don't even need to hunt them anymore. Something as simple as a fence yeah. changes the game entirely. Yeah, so tools as being something that throws a bit of a spanner in the mix when we talk about evolution because then it's no longer about what humans physically, intrinsically, biologically are, but mm. rather what our capability to do things with the things around us is Mm -hmm. absolutely i mean that's what i mean like we're a game changer in this whole whole formula this whole equation and a game changer unlike anything else that we know of and so given that do we have a responsibility to persist and stick around because we're the only people who can you know potentially stop something calamitous from happening further down the line yeah (laughs) it's a big one Yeah, I guess I can't help but think of, it's a kind of a savior mindset, isn't it? It's this idea of we have the capacity to stop something that we perceive to be bad from happening, Mm. therefore we should stop it, Mm. you know, and it makes me think of colonial narratives of floods are bad, fires are bad, we need to stop them from happening, let's build dams, or let's... uh, put out fires and let's not manage country in the way that it has been previously, Mm. but then there are flow-on effects. You know, like it's hard to think of taking action in the future when there are unknown unknowns. Yeah, totally. We don't know what the impact of us, say, stopping an asteroid hitting another planet might be because what if that that changes the initial trajectory Mm. of that asteroid and it causes so much more destruction elsewhere? But we also equally don't know what the uh, consequences of inaction are. Again, so to bring it back, we don't know that in a million years we might have some important role to play in the cosmos. And so if we just make the decision today to have the big party and let it all fall to hell in 100, 150 years or whatever, there's this unknown unknown that we didn't realize was hanging out there that if we'd known about, we'd be like, oh, no, we've got to survive so that we can be there in a million years to, you know, stop the universe imploding or something. I don't know. Because we're so important. (laughs) It's not necessarily about our importance, but our capacity, as you were getting at before. So I I realize it paints us as this big savior, but maybe that's the truth. Maybe we are the only, you know, saviors. Or maybe not. I'm just trying to entertain this possibility that if it were true, then there is this huge question about ethical responsibility. And also just, you know, it would change, I think, how we feel about how long we should last and so on. When we're thinking and talking about this idea of you know, human importance and mm. and do we have an obligation to protect other species or the universe more broadly or whatever it is, we're fundamentally being anthropocentric. So anthropocentricism is this idea that we put humans at the center and we believe that we see everything through whether it's morality, whether it's uh prioritization of various issues it's all with the human front and center in mind Mm -hmm. it's basically based off this so one of the roots of anthropocentrism is this idea that what separates us from everything else right that's the sort of starting point of anthropocentrism you have to have an anthro an anthro human and why are we singling out humans what's so special about humans in almost every case what it is is our mind our consciousness if you go back through the, the philosophers over the last millennia talking about consciousness and the, and the human mind, it's just a recurring theme, whether you're talking about some medieval philosopher or you're talking about an ancient Greek, 
whether it's Plato or St. Thomas Aquinas or whoever, it's a recurring theme. What makes humans special is our minds um, and our ability to you know, possess consciousness and rationality and reason, and this is why we are a light on an uncivilized world and so on. You know, shades of colonialism starting to re-enter. Again, because you know the colonizers typically looked at the indigenous peoples as less conscious, less, less than human. And so we use this consciousness idea as a differentiating point between us and, and, and from that flows everything, the bias towards humans and so on. But then if you look at it, there's evidence, you know, from all sorts of angles that suggests that maybe consciousness is a bit more common than we first originally thought it was. And that then turns the whole anthropocentric argument kind of on its head. It's like, oh, maybe other things are conscious too. It's just we don't have any kind of way of telling or we don't have access you know, that special access to be able to tell. This is baked the noodles of philosophers for millennia is how do you test for consciousness? What is consciousness? Whatever. Uh, they get really caught up in the whole problem. But the point is, if that's not the thing that makes us special, then it changes the whole equation really, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess we know that humans are conscious. We know that other people within our species have the same worth as every other person. And Therefore, it's not right for us to do violence mm. to those people. And then we enter into these other sort of philosophical questions of, well, what if someone is mentally incapacitated, you right. know, and they don't have the ability to make decisions of, on their own part? Yep. Therefore, is it moral to make decisions on their part? And then we come back to that example that you gave of euthanasia, mm. right? If someone is terminally ill and doesn't have the physical ability to talk or to even think, maybe their brain function is incapacitated. Yeah, so where do we where do we sort of draw this line, right? Because we can just say everything that we recognize to be human, that's our starting point. Everything that we look at and we're like, this is a human, that's a human, that's a human. Then we can say, okay, we have this obligation to people that we classify as human. And once again, there's this question of who is we? And then everything else is something else. But if, say, we're genetically closer to, I don't know, a dolphin than we are to um, that plant over there, do we therefore have a greater moral obligation to the dolphin than we do to the plant? Or do we just say there's humans and there's non-humans? Or does it end up being sort of a more graded scale? Mm. The philosopher Martha Nussbaum has said a lot about that idea that you were talking about before, this idea, say, you have a disability and yet you also have a legal right to vote in an election. And so what would happen, or what she's saying, at least in this case, what should happen is that a guardian sort of takes on that role for you. And again, so this is bringing in that whole saviour narrative, right? Um, so the guardian recognising that you don't have the cognitive capacity or the capability to perform this action does it for you in your best interests or what they can surmise are your best interests. And in that same way, um, you can argue that that's what we do well. It's what we sometimes do with the environment, right? I mean, it's certainly what environment advocates try and do for the environment. They try and speak on its behalf because it doesn't have a human voice that carries into human spaces. It does have a voice in other ways, but it doesn't have a human voice. And so they speak on its behalf, which is an interesting idea. So when humans die, we might have a will, right, which says yep. that you get my house and you get my car and you get this, you get that. Uh, sounds a bit like Oprah, if you ask me. <laughs> you get a car, you get a house, you get this, you get that. And if what we're saying is the environment can't talk, then how can we read the environment's will? 
Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure that question makes sense because if we're at the point where the environment has died and is leaving us, any, like what's it going to be leaving us? <laughs> if the environment's dead, then we're probably dead along with it, right? And here I am separating us from the environment, which is a whole other thing that we should really be talking about if we're going to talk about anthropocentrism is that it's used to differentiate us from the environment. And that's deeply problematic, um, according to some people. So there's this neo-Marxist theory called metabolic rift. And, and Marx himself talked about, this is Karl Marx, talked himself about this idea of the metabolic rift, which is the separation of man from nature, humans from nature. But he said man because, you know, back in the day. Women um, didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, women didn't exist back, back then. So even by coming up with that separation of humans and nature, and it's typically based on conscious and not. We've already started down the path towards ruin because by separating ourselves from nature, we've suddenly justified the subjugation of nature. We've suddenly justified the commoditization of nature. If we see ourselves as separate from nature, then it's certainly possible that we can destroy nature and we'll continue. You know, that nature will leave us a will. <laughs> but it's, it's, not the, it's not the reality. The reality is if nature dies, we die because we are nature. You know what I mean? So... And I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. It is so deeply baked into our language and it's so deeply baked into the way we think, our cognition, um, this idea that we are separate from nature. And to an extent, we are. If you look at the population of yeast in a Petri dish, you feed yeast sugar, the population will just go up and up and up. It will just rise exponentially. And it actually looks quite similar right now to the human population graph. You can track the two things. And the yeast will consume all that sugar and then precipitously just drop off the population. And that could be the future for us too. But there is a chance that it won't be. And so in that sense, we aren't like nature. Or we're not like some certain forms of nature where maybe nature plus. Yeah, but what if the what if the yeast had tractors and they could farm <laughs> sugar? <laughs> right. no, but I mean, they don't, you know, the, the yeast is too simple. It's not conscious enough to invent agriculture, right? So... <laughs> It just consumes the sugar and makes alcohol and, you know, dies. So, in a sense, we shouldn't think that we are separate from nature. And in a sense, we really should recognize that we are separate from nature because in doing so, in recognizing that, we can say, well, nature would just overpopulate and ride itself off that cliff. We can see what's happening. We can see into the future. We should be avoiding that. And in that way, we sort of become non-natural or maybe not non-natural, but different from other parts of nature. Maybe still natural, but natural in a different way. Let's say that we're separate to nature and mm -hmm. therefore we define our relationship with nature. We can choose how we want to use it. We can choose to value nature based on how useful it is to us or based on how much value we think it has within itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that making that distinction between instrumental versus intrinsic value is quite important because that sort of defines our relationship with the environment around us. Right. So let's tease out those two definitions. So we had instrumental. If something has instrumental value, then that means it's useful, you know, as an instrument. So a fork or a car, you might look at that and say you might draw the primary amount of value in that thing. The value you see in it is to, you know, pick up the food and put it in your mouth or to, you know, drive you from point A to point B. But then you look at something like a sunset or a work of art or just a beautiful little bug and you might say, well, that sunset isn't doing anything. It's an instrument, it's, but it's beautiful and it has some value in and of itself. And that's what we'd call intrinsic value. The value is just inherent to it. 
we might say the same thing about humans. Humans can be, you know, instrumentally useful. They can do things, but they also have value in and of themselves. A human life is just precious in and of itself. And that's where morality sort of stems from. Yeah, absolutely. But that's interesting that, okay, you said under the instrumental sort of category, Mm. you said cars, and under the intrinsic category, you said art, Mm. right? But at the same time, someone who's a car enthusiast may think that cars are absolutely beautiful and just has a car physically sitting in their garage, which they tinker around with. They never drive it around and they don't, they don't, I don't know, change the engine. What do you do with a a car? They're seeing Um, intrinsic value in something that others would see. Exactly. And similarly with art, someone may make a piece of art. Look at advertising. That's art that's being used for an instrumental way. Yeah. To make people change their behavior and do something. So... Yeah, it varies. So things can have both an instrumental and an intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. We might think that seeing something instrumentally, seeing it as having a use to us, we could see that as a sort of an exploitative relationship. But does that mean it's necessarily unsustainable? Mm. Fantastic question. So a lot of the time we get facile. I love the word facile. Facile means oversimplified, right? We get oversimplified arguments about sustainability. And you see this a lot when people talk about the instrumental use of nature. They will make the argument, fallacious in my view, that nature is just purely intrinsically valuable. Um, And to think of it in instrumental terms is to, you know, take the first step down the path towards ruin because the second you see it as something to be used, then you start commoditizing it and exploiting it and so on and so forth. It's a fair argument. It's not an argument without a lot of really good points, but like say an ecosystem service, an oyster can be valuable in and of itself, but it's also instrumentally useful for cleaning the water. I mean, that's what an oyster does is it sucks the pollutants out of the water. And so, or, you know, sphagnum moss soaks up the water or ecosystem services, the idea of an organism providing some sort of instrumental value to the greater ecosystem that exists within just shows you quite clearly that we can value things for their instrumental utility without necessarily exploiting them or whatever. We can even find intrinsic value in that instrumental value. We're getting really meta now, but we can look at the oyster cleaning the river and just say, that's beautiful it's how art. that all works. <laughs> yeah, that's art. Yeah. Like, and, and I kind of do. Like, I think it's kind of beautiful when I, when I learn about all these tiny little ways that everything all kind of works together. Like, it's, man, it's beautiful. It's in, I find it more beautiful than a sunset, <laughs> frankly. So we can see intrinsic in the instrumental and so on. So we have to be, I think, careful when we use these definitions. Well, first of all, we have to be mindful of them these different ways we value things. But then from that, I think we have to be careful about not judging too harshly this idea that things having an instrumental value are good. So, for example, we could take tourism or ecotourism, right? Mm -hmm. So you go out into a beautiful tropical rainforest that's a national park or something, and you're walking around it and you're admiring how beautiful it is, but you've got to pay an entry fee, which allows the National Parks Department or National Parks and Wildlife Service, wherever you are. Um, (laughs) And it allows them to maintain it, you know, to keep invasive species out and to be able to make sure that you don't have massive bushfires uh, and, you know, all these sorts of things that they need to do. And it's interesting because ecotourism gives some people business. So it Mm -hmm. brings in incomes for some people. So in that sense, it's instrumental to those people. And it might be intrinsic to those people as well. Maybe they have um, a spiritual connection with the landscape. Sometimes that spiritual connection may be practiced instrumentally through ritual or whatever it is. Uh, And to the person maybe visiting that place, it may be instrumental in the sense that you get a break from your boring ass desk job, right? (laughs) So you're having some 
use to yourself and for your own mental and psychological well-being and maybe even physical well-being but also that place is intrinsically beautiful Mm -hmm. and you appreciate it for what it is you know you might interact with it in different ways to other people but I think it's it's really complex because it's hard to just look at one thing and say this is absolutely instrumental or this is absolutely intrinsic. Yeah, and very rarely is because it's going to vary by the context and by um, the perspective who is making that value judgment. I think it's going to vary so much. So that's why it's so important that we be mindful of these things and that we be open-minded to the idea that nature can be instrumentally useful. Ecotourism, I think, is a fantastic example of that. Mining is an extremely like political and forefront environmental issue that environmentalists are like, mm. don't dig the ground. Mm. And you have indigenous communities that are like, don't dig our country. And the these companies and the government, if they're standing behind these companies, is going to say, well, we need that stuff, right? And a lot of the things that we mine are useful mm. for us. We can't have these smartphones mm-hmm. if we didn't have the precious materials that we get through mining. In that sort of situation, you can see a bit of a tension between the instrumental versus intrinsic value in the sense that some people may believe that the land has a has something that is so important that you can't mess with it too much, right? Mm-hmm. But then you also see a use for what's under the ground. But at the same time, if you do mine mine a certain place, then you're taking away other possible instrumental uses Mm -hmm. for that place. Absolutely. I I worry about that a lot of the time with fossil fuels, right? You know, we use them so much today, but what if they, what if, what if in a hundred years we discover, oh crap, we could have used this for some other amazingly, you know, powerful thing and we've used 90% of it. Yeah. I think that's a really good point too, to think about potential future instrumental value. Um, I remember we've had this conversation once before. You were talking about, you know, um, the idea that maybe certain species go extinct along the way just due to human things. And it turns out, you know, we discovered down the line, oh, crap, that little weed that we exterminated could have been used to cure cancer. <laughs> you know, oh, bummer. So, yeah, another another interesting way, I think, to think about instrumental value and how we can't fully know what the uses of any one thing are at a given time. Something that I tell myself on a very like personal level when I'm, say, having a bad day or whatever is do what you can do with what you have, mm. right? So it's like if I'm not feeling up to writing 50 essays today, it's fine. I can just do the laundry and that can be my one achievement for today. <laughs> and maybe we should think about that on a sort of a bigger scale, like on a species level. We're doing what we can with what we have. Mm. Maybe we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves by saying we should have really foreseen this thing that we couldn't possibly have foreseen with the technology and knowledge that we have at this current day. But at the same time, I guess there's also some other things that we do know and we're still not doing anything about. So, Yeah, I think one of the big criticisms um, about the whole fossil fuel use thing is that the just like big tobacco knew that cigarettes were unhealthy well before the public did. Uh, you know, the fossil fuel companies were talking about climate change back in the 80s. They were talking about CO2 emissions back in the 80s. They knew where there was, this was heading. You know, they've all burned all those documents, but we we know pretty much for a fact that many of them did. Some of the memos have survived and so on. It's quite damning to see that they realized all this. So certainly in some situations you can say, well, we didn't see this coming and we're just doing the best we can. But I think in others... We have to circle back to the global capitalist system that we live in, which perpetuates a lot of this unsustainable behavior intentionally. 
We can sort of trace back this great acceleration of environmental degradation, like ecosystem destruction, and green, greenhouse gas emissions, all that, to the end of the Second World War. So if you sort of look at those graphs around 1945, 1950 or so, you can see this sort of exponential increase. And some of these tra- trends can even be traced back to the Industrial Revolution. Mm. And what I mean by the great acceleration is talking about that particular period when all the graphs kind of shoot up rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, like we're using more water at what seems like an increasing rate, like never before. And that's pretty you know, intense to just even think about like, holy shit, we've had this impact in just the past few decades. Mm. We should probably quickly mention um, this phrase, great acceleration, refers to uh, the work of Will Steffen, one of the people we've interviewed for the, the grass ceiling. Um, and in his paper, he just provides uh, just graph after graph. I think there's like 27 of them, just 27 little boxes, and they all look identical. It's just this uh, graph that just has this exponential curve that starts skyrocketing upwards. And and even though all the graphs are the same, the things they're graphing are completely wildly different. It's worth just mentioning that that's where we're plucking this idea from. And it's also interesting to think about why this has happened at that particular period of time. You know, why... What was so significant about the past 50 years that we've had such a massive change that we can't really detect in all of the history, even prior to human existence? It's unprecedented. Mm. It's interesting to link this to what I've been learning about in a development studies class where we've been talking about the post-World War II development agenda. Colonization has been taking place for centuries and what was particularly significant about the end of World War II was that you had a lot of countries coming out of colonization and you had this push for this idea of development. And the US was really, really fundamental in that. They had this, and this is because of that lead up to the Cold War and they didn't want the USSR to win and all this sorts of stuff. And so they pushed this idea of development and helping um, helping non-Western countries to become rich and all these all these sorts of things and so you have industrialized democratic yeah capitalist yeah and so you have this massive number of populations that are now adopting this new um, way of conceiving wealth and well-being and the Mm -hmm. economy uh, which might have been different to how they operated prior to colonization and (laughs) almost certainly was different yeah Yeah. (laughs) and during that period of like I'm just taking a you know t- a typical example of a country that was colonized mm. um, during that period of colonization, they were seen to be a part of a European economy, right? Mm-hmm. So you take the British East India Company, yeah, you have an entire like yep. you know you have an entire subcontinent that's perceived to be one part of the British economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so and so even during colonization, you have this integration into this capitalist economy. But then after after World War II, when a lot of countries started gaining independence from the colonial powers, they began to take on these develop, so-called development trajectories of their own accord. And that's sort of where we can see the Great Acceleration taking place. Mm. For me, the story of the Great Acceleration is ultimately a simpler story. It's one about energy. So if you look at a lot of these graphs, human population, um, industrialization, GDP growth. And yeah, for me, when I'm looking at all this, it all boils back down to energy. So um, the reason why it has been possible for us to build these massive cities and, and 
and so on and to create global international trade is because energy has become abundant and cheap. Uh, so without oil, natural gas and coal, um, the modern, you know, modern civilization just doesn't exist. We go back to about the 1800s. Um, it's just not possible to have a shipping tanker, you know, loaded with millions of tons of wheat and take it from Australia to India or whatever, um, unless you have, you know, coal and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So for me, it's ultimately the story about energy and perhaps we'll discuss this in later episodes or, or for those listening, um, I'm certain that this episode or another one will um, include a written article by myself called Oil is the Cheat Code. And in that article, I talk about this idea that, the, you know, this great acceleration, all this progress that we've made is based on cheap and abundant oil. And that oil has effectively allowed us to, like, cheat. If, you know, if life is a video game, then we've got the cheat codes and the cheat code is oil. You know, you plug that in and everything gets easier. And then we turn around and we say, well, and then we look at all these sustainability challenges ahead of us. And then we look back at the past and we say, well, look at how far we've come. Look at all this amazing stuff we've done. You know, we're kicking ass and taking names at the game of life. You know, we've got this. It doesn't matter what the future's going to throw at us. And then my problem is I, I turn around and I look at the past and I say, well, we got all this way because of oil and coal and natural gas. You know, we're not half as clever or inventive or resourceful as we think we are. We just, you know, kind of got lucky. Lucky in the sense that the dinosaurs died off and got geologically compressed and created fossilized sunlight that we could tap into. Like a lot of things had to happen for us to be able to take advantage of that. And it's unlikely that we're going to, you know, get a similar break like that again in the future when we're dealing with future problems. So maybe we're less, um, less better positioned to tackle future sustainability challenges than we think we are. Maybe we have a kind of a cheater's sense of skill at the game of life. You know, we think we're good, but really we've been cheating the whole time and our opponent, you know, has been playing with one less chess piece on the board or something like that. And so when we're finally playing the game for real, we're going to be like, oh shit, we're not as good at this as we thought we were. But yeah, just a just an idea about sort of the great acceleration and, and you can view it and certainly some people do um, view it within this context of uh, energy. Uh, for example, Graham Zobel has written articles about this on uh, resilience.org and he's talking about how you can explain a lot of human history in terms of just energy consumption and usage. If you drill down, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't the rise of the automobile or the rise of modern sanitation or agriculture. All, all of that ultimately has a deeper cause, and that cause is being able to harness more energy. This episode so far has been so, I guess, philosophical, and we've been thinking about the future and, you know, what it all means and what do we mean by humans and all these all these sorts of questions. And right now we're sort of facing a big threat to our existence, and we know to an extent why we're here, and we also know to an extent what we've got to do to prevent doom in maybe we're not even talking about the next thousand years maybe we're just talking about the next 50 years maybe we don't want to die in the next 50 years and we've got to do something about it and i think the most important thing here is urgency so we're all going to have different reasons for why we might be taking the bus rather than driving a car or why we're protesting big corporations that are uh, drilling the earth or whatever it is does it matter that different people have different intentions if we're all just doing the same thing, working towards the same thing? It's mm, a good question. Um, so depending on your model of you know ethics, it, it's going to matter or it's not. So some ethical models really care about the intention more than they care about the result. Uh, they might say even that the result doesn't matter so long as your intentions were good. 
And then other models say consequentialism, which by its name kind of tells you what it focuses on is the consequences. It worries about, you know, what was the consequence? Forget the intention. It doesn't matter if your intentions were good if the outcome was bad. So I think, yeah, there, there is that. It's a difficult question to answer. I mean, I can't answer it. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's, it's a good question to ask, you know, because you see this so much in, say, in the environment groups I'm involved in, uh, the activist groups I'm involved in. There's a lot of people disagreeing about what the best step forward is. Some people want to do activism. Some people want to do advocacy. Some people want to tear the system down. Some people want to work within the system. Some people believe in collective action. Some people believe in encouraging individual action, so on and so forth, all these points of difference. And then you can, to further complicate things, say, well, what matters here is what, their intentions or the consequences of their actions? And, you know, that's a whole other way to look at the issue and complicate it even further. Yeah, I don't have answers for any of this stuff, but I think it's important that we're asking these questions and uh, at least exposing that deeper complexity to all of this. Yeah, so uh, actually in our next episode, we're going to be talking about philosophy in action. Mm. So how do we make sense of all of the things that we've talked about today mm -hmm. about you know, what's important, how do we prioritize this, what do we mean by the future, mm. how do we operationalize all of these philosophical questions when we talk about sustainability. Philosophy can be a bit of a mindfuck. Excuse my French. It can totally be one. I and, think and a minefield too. And it really helps to think about how we can take action on that to be able to make sense of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think um, our next episode, has, uh, there are a lot of ideas related to what we've been talking about today. You know, if we do have this kind of philosophical grappling with how long should we be around for, then there are other implications for that. As I said earlier, much earlier in the episode, um, what does annihilation actually mean? It could mean the end of our species in the sense of us all just getting incinerated, you know, in a blinding flash of light or something, or it could mean humans no longer exist because we've all uploaded ourselves into machines and flown off into space and whatever. So our species no longer exists and has been kind of willingly, happily annihilated. So... <laughs> Yeah. The more you dig into this issue, the more kind of edge cases that you have to consider and stuff. And that'll definitely be um, some of what we talk about in, in the future episodes. The Grass Ceiling is hosted by me, Nick Blood. And hosted and produced by me, Sumitri Venkatasubramanian. Our project supervisor is Edwina Fingleton-Smith. The Grass Ceiling is made possible thanks to the technical support of the ANU Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. For more TGC content, check out our website at www.thegrassceiling.net. Of course, a big thank you to Jackson Weeb for all the music used in this episode, and also to the ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society for all their support in making this project happen. And now, it's bloop time. Or maybe not non-natural, but different from other parts of nature. Maybe still natural, but natural in a different way, if that all makes sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just looking at um back to the next